friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to episode 32 of the MC Lars podcast. Today's episode is with Greg Carlisle. It is Monday, April 8th, and we are on tour in the UK. Cuckoo Kangaroo, Mega Ran, Ruled by Raptors, and myself. We had the day off today, and we're staying on a small coastal village on the, the eastern, northern eastern coast of Scotland. I've never been up here. We always just drive straight through the motorway up to Scotland. So it's kind of cool to take a detour. We played Newcastle, so we had time to stop, and uh, it's been awesome. We are in Glasgow tomorrow, then the 10th Huddersfield, then Nottingham, then we end the tour on Saturday, April 13th in London. Then we go to the Midwest, April 30th, Fargo, May 1st, Minneapolis. Then we do Milwaukee, Chicago, Pontiac, Cleveland, Rochester, Columbus, Pittsburgh, Nashville, Birmingham, Birmingham, sorry, Charlotte, Atlanta, Gainesville, West Palm Beach, Orlando, and then I play on June 8th, Boston, with my original band, opening for Big D and the Kids Table. Then that's it for a while. I'm kind of taking a break from touring, so this is the last time you might be able to see me for a while, and uh, that's cool, though. It makes these shows super exciting. It's a momentous 10-year of my second album, an album that I didn't ever think I would finish. You know, it was made that album during a period of transition, and... Um, Really proud of Robot Kills. So today we're talking to Greg Carlisle. He's a teacher, a writer, an academic, a blogger, an interesting guy who teaches at Moorhead State University in Moorhead, Kentucky. And two weeks ago, I opened for MC Chris at the Lexington, Kentucky Comic Con after party. And I rented a car and I drove out, drove an hour east to hang out with Greg. And it was awesome. Like I'd read his book, Elegant Complexity, along with Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. And uh, let me tell you a background about Greg. He got his Master in Fine Arts from the University of Louisville. Um, he teaches theater and drama at Moorhead State, and he's one of the old-school faculty members who's been there the longest. He said he's been there about 20 years. I really like his laugh, because every time in the interview he says something profound or like sad or <laughs> dramatic about uh, Infinite Jesse laughs, which kind of punctuated the interview well. So he's got a great laugh and uh, he's a really sweet guy. Like I, I emailed him out of the blue and I sent him my TED talk, said, you know, I, I'd heard him on other podcasts. I told him I was a fan of his uh, story, uh, his analysis of Infinite Jess, and he agreed to meet with me. So he wrote this book because when Ulysses came out, uh, the Bloomsday book was a cool way to help read Ulysses. So he wanted to provide something similar for Infinite Jest. And I think one of the best online uh, analyses of Infinite Jest is Aaron Swartz, Google Aaron Swartz Infinite Jest. He was the co-founder of Reddit who got in trouble for um, sharing all the academic journals from Harvard. Um, and he actually, he committed suicide without leaving a note and an interesting, sad guy, a Stanford kid. I didn't know him, but we, I think we we're there around, a few years apart from each other. Anyway, Aaron Schwartz has a great analysis of the end of Infinite Jest, but it's crazy because Infinite Jest is about this illegal cartridge that if you watch leaves you in stasis and then you starve to death and defecate yourself and can't move. And Aaron Schwartz got in trouble, huge trouble for for sharing these illegal like academic journals. And just like the dad in um, Infinite just died mysteriously, so did Aaron. So it's kind of weird how life imitates literature. But um, listening to this podcast, it struck me that it's like, if you have, if you don't know the plot of Infinite Jest, it's going to be like we're speaking German or Ital Italian because there's like hundreds of characters. There's all this jargon. It, I was listening while I was editing. Like I was cleaning my room and listening. I was like, I could follow it, but I was like, I could see how this is very confusing. So 
Here's what I want you to do. Before you listen, pause this, go on Wikipedia, read the plot summary. And I, I want to warn you that in talking about the book, we give away a lot of the plot, but the plot is so gigantic and confusing. It's actually nice to know what happens. And then go to TV Tropes. That's a cool site that summarizes things. And it, there's a great infinite Jess page. The entertainment is this device. It's the MacGuffin, right? A MacGuffin is something that drives a plot. It's this cartridge that if you watch, you die. And um, I wanted to focus on the movement of this piece of technology throughout the book because it kind of drives the plot. Everything else gets kind of confusing. But if you can focus on this part of the story, it's nice. And it was really cool to kind of volley intellectually back and forth with Greg Carlisle about these topics because I've been in a vacuum reading this book. And yes, I did some Patreon songs about it, but I kind of feel like I've been on my own. And I think that this is interesting because this understanding this book is like people talk about the, how the humanities are not useful and you know there's a lot of emphasis on STEM education and all that's great. It's super important. But to be able to talk about a book like this and understand the emotional depth and, and the literary context and everything, I don't know. It kind of gave me a lot of like insight on how how I've been feeling these days, how the world seems, like what social media has done to the planet, how the Facebook is basically like the MacGuffin of the entertainment. And so, yeah, shout out to the humanities professors everywhere. Shout out to people getting their MFAs. Shout out to, you know, people doing the non-practical thing. So we could do podcasts and uh, play Comic-Con after parties right on. Um, we're going to end with the Jabberwocky song from Dewey Decibel, which premiered on Spotify two Fridays ago. Um, this song I really like because... Just as Foster, David Foster Wallace made up some words, Lewis Carroll's famous for making up lots of language. And one of the words that, obscure words that David Foster Wallace helped popularize is phantoz, which is a state of nervous excitement. And he talks about how when um, Oren, who's the older brother, the athlete older brother in Infinite Jest, when he sees cockroaches when he's living in Arizona, he gets the howling phantoz. And that's the, actually the name of an Infinite Jest fan page. So uh, just like Wallace popularized new words. So did Lewis Carroll. So this is my interview with Greg Carlisle. Before we get into this, I want to give a shout out to some of the new Patreon supporters, Jeff, RJ, and AJB. Thank you. Big shout out to some old Patreon supporters, Alex, Eli, and Dylan. If you want to check out more musical flavor, go to patreon.com slash mclars. And anyway, let's get into it. This is my interview with the legendary literary critic, theater teacher, Greg Carlisle. <laughs> Check one, two, check. Check one, two, check. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I am here with Greg Carlisle, teacher, author, academic, here at Moorhead State University, and you're one of the OG faculty here, you were saying. Yeah, I've been here. This is my 18th year at the university. I wow. did a variety of things, but I'm basically a theater professor now. I teach a lot of theater, various theater courses here. And you did your grad work in theater, is that? Yes, yeah. I have a Master of Fine Arts from the University of Louisville. You were saying before you started teaching theater, you are teaching writing here? Did I here, I started here teaching the basic speech class, which oh, is great to yeah. kind of break down how communication works. It's really helpful to theater and for, you know, for any kind of analyzing how you speak and communicate. That's cool. And how long have you been teaching theater? Then? I have, uh, I got my degree in the 90s. And so I was doing a little bit of teaching while I was in school. And then uh, 
uh, adjuncting around Kentucky, teaching theater classes. And then I started teaching speech here and quickly uh, started adding theater classes. So over 20 years I've been teaching theater. <laughs> How many students are at Moorhead, would you say? Uh, I actually don't know, and I'm scared I'll misspeak, and <laughs> yeah. my university will come. That was the wrong number. Uh, there, there are several thousand students enrolled. We have a lot of commuter students. It's probably mm. We're probably pushing five figures of students, but a lot of our students are commuter students as well. But uh, you know, you've seen the campus. We have a, kind of a smaller campus. We have several thousand on campus and a lot more that commute in. Is it grad students too or just undergrad? There are some programs that have a graduate yeah. uh, program here. Yeah. Uh, and some do and some don't. That's cool. What I love about Elegant Complexity, um, I listened to your some of the other podcast stuff you did, is how as a director, you broke up this massive tome and you explained how what each scene you'd want to achieve, right? Is, did I get that right? Yeah, I, as a theater director, what I like to do is take the play and, and break the play into its beats, a Stanislavski word, beats. Yeah. It just means the smallest unit that can exist by itself with like a beginning, middle, and end. Um, for a director, there are kind of swaths, so it may be a page or two or three, depending on the context of the show. For an actor mm. doing a monologue, you'd have to break that monologue into smaller pieces. But from the director's viewpoint, you take you try to break what you're working on up uh, average modern two-hour play might have 50 60 beats i for me hamlet has about 80 beats you know and then wallace's massive huge novel i well his some of his sections are long and even though i would call it a section reading elegant complexity some of the longer like eschaton or something mm. you had to break that up even further because it was so long but yeah the to me that's the mindset of how i work as a director take how does each unit relate to the overall theme the essence of the play and and that's what i tried to do uh find what what why was this little you know one paragraph section that wallace put in there it had to be for a reason it had to be there must have been some kind of thematic idea he was trying to get across and just trying to discover you know because it would you know it'd go back and forth between long sections and there'd be a little blip of something and then move on to something else well what was the importance of that little small section mm. and it's it's such a great I, I read, like I was saying to you earlier that I read your guide before I read Infinite Jest and then I read it along with Infinite Jest. And you're saying that most people don't read your guide first, right? The What I've been able to see like from online, most people either, a lot of times people finish Infinite Jest and of course you want more and you want to go back and yeah. I'm sure I can solve some mysteries. And so they pick up my book and, and read through. Oh. Sometimes people have used it read a section of Infinite Jest and then read a section of the book. It just, you know, Infinite Jest is already long. Yeah. So you, you know, it makes sense that you would wait and kind of read my book afterwards unless you really wanted some help going through. I had, like with Ulysses, that was kind of the inspiration. Uh, the Bloomsday book mm. helped me through Ulysses and what I would do is I would read a long, one of the long 18 chapters of Ulysses and then go read a chapter of that guy. I kind of had to to keep moving forward. I don't think you necessarily have to with Infinite Jest. I think it's easy enough to read. They don't really need a guide, but mm. then if you get particularly confused, you know, you could pop in and go, oh, okay, and then move on forward. When you read Infinite Jest, did you read the footnotes along or did you? Yes. Yeah, yeah I did. I, yeah. I loved that quality. I, yeah. I, I lo half of them are hilarious. Right. You, know, you look <laughs> you look back there in note 73. I, I don't have the actual note for IJ fans out there. But it, you, you go back and it'll say like no clue. And then you go back to the text. I think that's hilarious. It's just funny. You know. How long did it take you to read Infinite Jest your first time? Let me think. Uh, I... I must have started sometime in 2000. I know I finished in 
January of 2001, I, I wrote on the old Infinite Summer blog about this, but it, I was sick, had to call, like, couldn't go to work, and mm. so I got to read the book all day. I, I remember it being January 2001, and just in a flurry, it's like I couldn't put it down once you hit those last couple hundred pages that are just, ah, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I read it, I don't know how many months it took me. It, I loved it. I was reading through it uh, pretty quickly. And especially once you hit about page 700, it's like, oh, I don't want to let this go. <laughs> so when the, when the action kind of builds the climax or it starts that to, long check yeah. with the where there are lots of stories are happening around November 14th and you cut back and forth in that long swath before Gately and Hal then kind of get immobile, Gately in the hospital. It's the, cha- the chapter where Gately's missing get, you know, all exciting. Yeah. It's running section by section and then the more. A plot still goes on in the end of the book, but that reflective Gately's in the hospital and Hal's very reflective, kind of lying down and thinking about his life and everything. So it's really cool. Um, I was reading on Aaron Swartz's blog that you and him had communicated. I, I, or had you, or he just cited I don't, you? I don't think so. He made it just cited me because most people, when they, that's the name I've heard when people want to get what they think has gone on with the book. You hear Aaron Schwartz's name a lot. Yeah. Uh, and I remember reading his and going, oh, yeah, that sounds great. Because on the internet, you could read. I mean, everybody that loves Infinite Jest, if you, if you have a spare five years, you can write your own elegant complaint. I mean, right, and because right. that's kind of what happens on the internet is everyone yeah. has their theory. And a lot of times it's pretty persuasive. It's wonderful how many, how many, you know, there's no uh, definitive answer, but... There's a lot of you. You can make a persuasive case for many things. Yeah. You know, I generally, you know, read that and go, oh, that's pretty convincing. But then I end up going back to my book and thinking, well, this is kind of what I thought. But, you know, you kind of go back and forth. And I, I remember hearing you talk about on that um, podcast that sometimes people would have questions and you would copy and paste because the book has so many answers. We right? were, yeah. <laughs> I was reading, while I was writing the book, I was on the, uh, the Wallace L. Listserv. It's a, mm. uh, no one's going to know what that is on your podcast. <laughs> Because I had finished the book and I was I was trying to write this book from 2003 to about 2007, and I would um, as people would add because this is a lot of people uh, at that time social media wasn't as big as it is now, and um, a lot of people were using this list. There used to be a lot of traffic where now you know there's hardly anything because we have different modes of communication. Yeah, but there a lot of new readers of Infinite Jest because a lot you know some of the. Uh, some people read it in 1996. You know, I didn't read it until 2000, 2001, mm-hmm. uh, and other people were just discovering it in 2003. And so, as people had questions, I had just, you know, I would, I would be taking notes and reading and trying to formulate my book. And uh, as a question would come up, I, I would cut and paste from something I was writing this long thing, you know, up there uh, to the list, and it kind of helped me because I put in the in the thank you notes to Elegant Complexity. Um, and the acknowledgments, I acknowledge that listserv because it kept my brain working mm. and thinking and logically analyzing things for those years that I went through writing the book. And, and then after the book was published, it probably gets irritating. People ask questions now and I'll just go flip <laughs> to the book and cut something and paste it like I'm trying to advertise the book. But I'm really just <laughs> answering a question on the spur of the moment about this is not terribly easy. I have to look back at what I've written right, where I had right. time to edit it and make it sound eloquent. And I like to put my best writing up as an answer that's you know hopefully i can you know come up with good answers for you without having to resort to the book <laughs> did, did you find that when you were um on the listserv people would give you feedback and then that helped that changed some stuff or, or not sometimes really? it did yeah uh, there were some people that are really astute i think there's a guy named george carr in cleveland that i th- actually thank in the uh. in the, there are a lot of uh astute readers 
Uh, and there, yeah, there were several people that would say something. I would go back and jot a note down, you know, in my manuscript of one, because I, I would work. Um, I knew I was going to take a second pass through because it's so huge. And I would go back to chapter seven, make a note. And then when I get back to that mm. and trying to, you know, run back to the manuscript and incorporate all the notes I'd made along the way. Yeah. You know, I had notes from various sources, including that listserv. It's interesting also reading reading your book and, and studying the history of Infinite Jest, the small changes Wallace did in some of the different editions to fix the chronology, like little things you, you know, you noted. He, um, any, I think any record I have of that was from Stephen Moore's, you know, the guy that wrote the history of the novel, those two huge history of the novel volumes, which are fantastic. Mm. Stephen Moore, he was the editor of Donkey Press, uh, at the time that Wallace was writing this and, and, and Wallace sent him the first draft. And uh, some of the – you can track changes from the first draft to the second draft through his notes. Mm. Uh, that's uh, He's actually got uh, a, uh, a version of that now in his book, My Back Pages, where you don't have to go online to find it. Now, you, you can go to Nick Maniatis' The Howling Fantods and find the, that, the tracking of the changes from first draft to second draft. Mm. You can find it in print now too uh, there. But that's the only way I know to track that is through what he said. So if I if I noticed a change in version, it would be from his notes. Now that they have the archive in Austin, Texas, there are probably going to be some Infinite Jest scholars that go look for previous drafts of Infinite Jest and and, and track that uh, as well. And we'll have other people find other things maybe that Stephen Moore didn't as he was going through. And that's it's kind of cool though. Like what I find interesting is the fandom of Infinite Jest really coincides, like you said earlier, with the rise of social media and the internet and how like a lot of the archives of right before his death and shortly after is where a lot of the papers and, and blogs and everything seem to come from on Google, you know? Do you think his passing gave a renewed interest in the book? Or I, I think it's possible. The, the interest was, I think it was pretty solid. Yeah. And now then, at the time of Wallace's death, interest in Wallace just blew up. Yeah. You know, because it, it used to be that you know, those of us like on the listserv, these, the, the Wallace nerds, anything that came out, any publication that came out, we would find it and read it. Right. But then after his death, there was so much, I just had to give up. I couldn't read everything. Mm. I, I mean, I, if I spent 24 hours a day reading Wallace scholarship, I would never be able to read it. Right. There, so there was a huge increase in interest. I don't think interest in Infinite Jest really had waned, but it certainly, all things Wallace took off in 2008. Yeah. Had you ever had any interaction with him before? I did death? not. I yeah. had, uh, I was, I had uh, reserved a place to see him speak at Butler University in Indiana. He was supposed to speak there in, I think, February of 2009, and I had mm. tickets, and then he died in September of 2008. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I was never even in the same room with him, so. Wow. What was your first exposure to him? Was it Infinite Jest, or was it any of his novels? I, uh, I had, re I think I'd read The Depressed Person in Harper's Magazine. Uh, and then my mm. friend, my best friend, uh, uh, gave me uh, uh, a supposedly fun thing uh -huh. I'll never do again. And I read this thing. Oh, these are the greatest essays. You know, because I knew, oh, depressed person. Yeah, I want to read this. The essays were so good. Yeah. And so then when I gave that back, it was, now you need to read Infinite Jest. And so, uh, yeah. So that's how I got to it, through the essays first. Or one short story, the essays, and then uh, I got to Infinite Jest that way. I found him through a, a friend from college, a year older, recommended Signifying Rappers. Yeah, and right. it makes sense for you to read that one. <laughs> and I thought that was like so funny and sharp. And it's, I guess it's 
even Wallace admits it's, it felt a little dated in like 2003 when I read it. But then I got into his nonfiction and for years I'd had Infinite Jest. I'm sure this is a common um, thing people talk about. And I, I just said I'd started it so many times. But then I was like, well, let me get an overview of the story and then I'll dive into it. So your book was the catalyst. Oh, and, great. That's and awesome. Would, I would, I was, there was a period I was spending maybe six, seven hours a day for like a month and a half you know, reading it. And it was just one of those things like, like going to the gym, like committing yourself to, but infinitely, so to speak, rewarding, you know? And, yeah. and um, how many times would you say you've read it cover to cover? Infinite well, Jest? it was, I read it the first time and then I kept thinking about it in the process of writing the book, I would read each section over and over and over and over again yeah. <laughs> to take notes and to try to put it in a chronology, like with, with the stuff in the back of Elegant yeah. Complexity, trying to put them in a chronological order and trying to take these notes and trying to uh, mine everything out of that section that I could and take notes on it. So it was kind of a very long five year reading over and over and over. Yeah. That got to this book. And now I'm, <laughs> now I'm slowly. Uh, I have it on my phone now, and I'm slowly making my. I'll, you know, once a month, I'll go read a few pages. And I'm almost halfway through on the on the ridiculously slow <laughs> read. Now is I guess wave three. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, I, my favorite thing from your book is your interpretation. And you see here, like I underline, underlined, you have this line: although our social systems are built around the ideal of achieving the greatest good for the greatest amount of people, technological advances often promote isolation and self-focus rather than communication with others. And you see, I, I wrote here, Instagram. <laughs> That's my note, my marginalia. <laughs> yeah. And then um, I have the, uh, this, your line here, I put a star here. Even if that action seems repetitive and pointless, um, the choosing, you talk about choosing action over stasis, um, it is better to abide moment to moment than to succumb to the passivity of paralyzed stasis, right? And we can unpack that, but those are the two, two themes I love that you got out of the book about, you know, how we can be separated and how, like Hamlet, you need to make up your mind, right? And and take action. And yeah, I thought this interpretation was... Well, was sometimes in the action, it's like Gately. I just reread this section of my film where Gately just, he got down on his knees every day to the higher power, even though he didn't believe in God, because that's what AA a, a told him to do. And it was like, I don't think it's going to work, but then one day it helped him. And the, it's just, the tennis players... At ETA, they go through this routine. And then we reach a point where Hal, apparently, who can't communicate by the time we get to the chronological end of the novel, actually, the first chapter, Hal can't really communicate because he's in that isolated thing. Mm -hmm. But he can still play tennis because he's worked day to day at ETA. And now his body, because of that repetition, works. So there's that sense of action. You may not know why or Take some act, keep going. You know, it's yeah. almost like a Beckett, Samuel Beckett. The first, my theater. If any theater people are listening, you know, it's the you know you you go on. I can't go on. I'll go on. The famous Beckett line. Is that from Waiting for Godot? Or? It's from a, it's from Samuel Beckett. Yeah, uh, it, it's from one of his novels. Yeah, but, but yes, yeah, same kind of with Waiting for Godot. Let, let's uh, shall we go? Let's go, and they don't move. Yeah, it's right. the same kind of thing. Uh, uh, and, and then the section with Erdetti when he's getting the call. And the doorbell's ringing. Right. Being Caught between two. Yeah. Two, you, yeah. That's a theme that you you talk about throughout the book, having to make a decision and like the motion that's also I immobilized. Yeah. Kind you, of. Could, you could be moving and be in stasis. There's a lot of images of that in, throughout the book that you're moving, but you don't go anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, so it's and, both. So sometimes you're yeah. moving and it, and it 
and you don't go anywhere. But sometimes just just taking an action, even if it does, even if you are a hamster in a loop, and at least you're doing something instead of being still. I guess I don't know. It's you know <laughs> that's the thing about infinite jest is sometimes the analogy is you know works, and sometimes it's an it's a image for something that's not helpful. So it's kind of like this choice thing. Sometimes you just have to make a choice. It it could be that you're making the choice to continue to be a hamster in a wheel, or it could be the choice that you're you've learned something about how to do the hamster wheel better or jump off the wheel, you know, just, yeah, but do something. As long as you do something, you're not going to, nothing's going to happen unless you do something. Right. <laughs> and, and reading the book is sometimes it feels like that stasis because you sit down with it for an hour and you're just a millimeter deep into it. Right. That like the process of engaging with the book is, it, I don't know. I thought about that. Like take, like the idea for me to take the action to read the book and then wanting to write songs about it is me trying to grapple with this this thing that seemed infinitely difficult, you know, and having faith that I would get through it. And it's so great to to finally meet you and talk to you about the book and knowing that like our personal journeys, sometimes we can feel isolated now, especially with social media. But if you take that action to reach out or to try to understand something, certain pieces of art or literature will reward you. And I feel like that was some of the greatest hip hop. We were talking about Public Enemy earlier, and yeah. and and this book, and um, yeah. I mean, I just wonder what particularly makes this book so special to you. There, it's hard to articulate. You read it, and you feel like, oh, if I can just spend some time with this, I'll figure out how to put it all together. But in the process of, of spending five years trying to do that, I re I figured out, oh, it's. It's not supposed to come together. It's it's mm. purposefully made where there are these holes. He's talked about the structure of that, of the, the Serpinski gasket, but the holes are always there. And it's, uh, there's still this, uh, sitting here talking to you, I mean, trying to prepare for this, reading back through, I'm like, mm. I, can, I can find an answer. If I, it's like, even though I know now that it's designed where you have to take this leap of faith and, and and figure out the answer or just accept that there is no answer there's yeah. still the sense that if we talk here long enough we can find the answer to something so that that's a kind of a magical quality right there right you know right. <laughs> so it's like so if i could just you know maybe five years wasn't enough if i could reread it closely again i can you know but I, but i think that's the great thing is that he he wallace figured out that he could build this structure that kind of keeps this kind of intense interest where the 12 years after I wrote this book, I can sit here and talk to you because there's, yeah. an, there's, an, there's such an interest in infinite jest and there's a quality about infinite jest that, that makes you want to uh, puzzle over it. Yeah. Which is an active, it, again, we're going to run in circles <laughs> trying to figure this book out, but it's a fun running in the circle that we're doing. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, I, I, another thing that spurred my interest was Chuck Klosterman's, um, but what if we're wrong? It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's nonfiction. And he has a section about how do we codify and define the great American novel? And he gives examples of how sometimes you do that retroactively. Moby Dick being a metaphor for manifest destiny, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, Huck Finn being an example of like the, the, the social history, what we'd have to grapple with after the Civil War. Gatsby being about like the idea that we can project perfection. And he, he makes a point that infinite jest will be in a hundred years, a great candidate for the great American novel because it kind of predicted 9-11 in that there's this idea of terrorism through in our own like mechanized systems, like right. stuff like yeah. that. And our obsession with 
um, inaction and entertainment in ourselves and how this book kind of predicted a lot and is something that might be considered the, def- the defining book of the 21st century, even though it was written before. Right. What what do you think of that theory? Yeah, I think you know when I when I catch myself, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm on Facebook so that I can find out you know what jobs my students get after they graduate. But you know, I'll sit there and I could read a short story, but instead I spent 45 minutes scroll, and I'll sit there as I'm scrolling, saying, "Get off this, <laughs> get off this, and read a short story," and still scroll, and it's kind of a terrifying <laughs> entertainment kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah. but um, yeah, I think the just. Uh, the quality of the novel that that makes you want to come back to it and, and some prescience about these things are part of it. I also, the thing about the novel is so unique. If there was a sequel, you know, sometimes some people want to take a famous novels and make sequels to them. If right. you made a sequel to Infinite Jest, if Wallace was alive or if someone tried to do it, it would have to be the same thing where you pile up a bunch of details close to a moment, mm-hmm. but then don't uh, uh, solve the, you know, then you skip over to the next thing and there's something that's always unknown. You would still, you would, like, if you set, it, if you had to, if you did another Infinite Jest, you'd have to do it like like Lynch just Lynch and Mark Frost just did Twin Peaks, where it's, yeah. it's 25 years later and then, oh, we're expecting all the solutions from the series. And really, the stuff from the original series are just anchors that keep you connected and they broaden the story out. Yeah. So you would now, if you did it, you would have to, who's it in it house now and yeah. who's recovering from addiction now. And what are the sports? It would almost be like, you'd have to broaden it and, and you have the same themes of isolation and, and needing to make a choice, but it would, but then some of you are okay. What's whatever happened to gate. It would be like gately in the future. And there would be these pieces that you want to know about what happened to gately, what happened to yeah. how, yeah. and you would have them now, and you still wouldn't know th- there would there would be pieces missing, and you have one little solution of something. Oh, here's right. what they meant about you're pulling the head out of the casket. They'd give you something like like Lynch did with Twin Peaks. Yeah, but but the essence of Infinite Jest is something's missing, right. and we want to puzzle over it. You know, and the th- it's really more about the themes. If you had to do a sequel, it wouldn't be a plot sequel. It would be a theme sequel. That's a good. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. And maybe like Infinite Jest. I'm sorry, like Twin Peaks having new locations, right? Right. Maybe spread. there's some, it's some not, place in Canada we don't know. Yeah, or something like that. Right. And it, well, Twin Peaks because I think they wanted to broaden it and make it for the whole country and then planet wide, universal. Yeah. And Infinite Jest already had kind of a, a bit of an international flavor to it. I yeah. Guess. Yeah. But yeah, they would have to do. They would have to expand thematically instead of uh, plot wise. Yeah. I um I like how throughout your book you 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 specifically connect with Lynch in ways that are so obvious and reading his essay about Lynch you yeah. know when when he was on the what was it Lost Highway he was on the set of that yeah. I guess yeah um and one of the characters is one of the students doesn't speak English that well but but keeps using um, colloquial phrases he translates them poorly I forget which th- that character's name is who um. The scene where is it the, Idris Arslanian? Yeah, I think, and and he and that reminded me a lot of the wife, the Asian wife of the lumber baron, who takes right, colloquial yeah, yeah. phrases and then interprets them in literally. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, that's good. And, and it's made me think about how Josie, Josie, about, yeah, yeah, Josie, yeah. Um, how Wallace had so many influences, and then how things like with Oren's interview, where he's just giving the answers, how that really influenced brief hit interviews with hideous men. Right. That his stylistically, it's it's very interesting. Like, if I hadn't 
not not to you know not to keep going back to it, but it would have been really hard for me to read Infinite Jest without a guide like your book. And I wanted to then talk about the plot of the book, try to make sense of it. And for those of you who haven't read Infinite Jest and don't want spoilers, we're just going to let you know we're going to tell the story of it. <laughs> so just just a warning. But I think it's really helpful to be able to talk with with one of the leading expert Wallace experts in the world about the history of the cartridge and who how it makes its way to the ending and try to create a chronological tell the story chronologically together right now if if you're downgrade yeah um <laughs> the it's so strange because the mystery starts from the very beginning jim house father uh who is you know becomes is a wraith in most of our story the wraith tells gately in the hospital bed that he that he made that cartridge for hal to bring hal out of himself um so but there's already there's problems right there because you go back to that early scene in the book the the professional conversationalist a, a flashback when Hal was very small, and he was talking to his dad, yeah. and his and Jim was thinking Hal was not speaking and Hal was speaking so he's like dad I'm li-, you know so there's like Hal's talking and Jim doesn't hear him, um, which is kind of like the reverse of in the opening of the book and, and you're glad Hal's talking but the administrators can't hear him, but so. Already, did Hal necessarily need that, or was Jim not interpreting? Regardless, Jim makes the film. But if he's just making it for Hal, then obviously he's not going to mass produce it. And did Jim know it was dangerous? Mm. If if so, there seems to be this limited, like like there's only one master or something. Um, that Mario and Avril and the lawyers know was buried with Jim in his casket. But based on what happened in the novel, copies must have been made. And it's, um, to give some background, he was a scientist who discovers film, right? Uh, 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 Jim was, right? Yeah, he had several careers. He had a physics, of, uh, like a fiber optic, well, not fiber optic, but a, I don't know, electromagnetic, some kind of physical you know, discoveries in that realm yeah. and then moved to film. Well, tennis and then... The physics science career and then film, and it's it, is it worth mentioning like what we speculate is on this film that kills people? Well, they say in there it's Joel, the most beautiful woman in the ever, or like yeah. And it, uh, there's another theory we could get into about how I I believe that the scar, the acid that scarred her face, made it where people were so drawn to her. Perhaps it's like a an extra vulnerability. She was already beautiful, and then somehow this scar made it where you couldn't look away. So she joined, you hid the, the yeah. <laughs> uh, union of the hideous and then probably deformed. And she wears the veil all the time. How did she get scarred? There, late in the book, there was, she had gone, uh, Oren had come home with her at a Thanksgiving, and some family trauma came out, and the, and the acid got through, I think her mom or someone, someone, yeah. I forgot who it was, through the acid, and Oren ducked. Because uh. they were trying to throw the acid at Orin, and Orin ducked, and the acid hit uh, Joel. And that reminded me of um, Nathaniel Hawthorne's Minister's Black Veil. Do you know that short story? I don't know that. It's one. about this minister who wears a veil, and it's and it's what he's covering up. But it kind of is speculated that maybe there's nothing there. You yeah. Know? So that I don't. I wondered if he as reference to Hawthorne, maybe not. <laughs> well, they, uh, well, he could be. I, yeah. He know, he knew all the books, but, um, I think to me, I think that's the, like, because it says somewhere in there that 
she did this last film with Jim unveil. I think there's a quality of her scarred face and Jim's lenses. Mm. They're supposed to give you kind of a baby's eye view, a neonatal yeah. um, processing. And, and she's saying these come like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, kind of in her awesome voice that she has yeah. her own radio program that, that, you know, compels people as well. So I think it's just this compelling, uh, and I, th- I think it's like, it, it, it compels to your sense of self-absorbed, your ego. This is just for you. Yeah. Kind of thing. So I think it, that's the, the power of the film is this, it's a film where people don't look away. They don't necessarily die from it, but they, uh, yeah. they they refuse to eat. They won't go away from it. So after a certain amount of time and you haven't eaten and you're sitting there, you know, in your own yeah. waste and you eventually die from not eating because you can't look away from the film. And it's the nature of the film. In the film, is, is the mom smothering the baby, killing the baby or just apologizing? I don't know. I think there's some discussion of the logic of the the woman who killed you as your next life's mother or something. Okay. It's kind of mythos that goes along with it. But all we know of the film is that image of of her just saying, I'm sorry. I don't, maybe that's supposed to be associated with the death. I'm not okay, sure, yeah. but I, I, don't, I don't think it's supposed to be an act of violence. I think the thing that keeps people from looking away is, is, a, is a comforting thing. I, this is now, you'll have to make your own opinions like, like millions of people have done. This is just me <laughs> saying what I've drawn from the text. Okay, so it's this cartridge and it's also called the Sammy's Dot, right? Yeah, after the old, when in the, you would sneak papers around in a underground literary circles in Russia, things you weren't supposed to read. So that is things that it, it's supposed to be dangerous. Yeah. And then, yeah, I don't know if Jim thought it'd be dangerous or not, but, but clearly he wanted it buried in his cat. It wasn't, it was only supposed to be for how, so how did okay. copies get made? And yeah. my guess was that somehow in Jim's laboratory at, in it, someone must have made copies. Someone savvy. There's a guy named Disney Leith, yeah. who was Joel like was Joel's Joel was learning about how to do film too, and I think, and he was her a mentor. Somebody, but there's no. That's the problem. Is there's no motive for anyone to want to make a copy back when no one knew about it but Jim. So You're maybe right. I'm having to get and here. I try to stay close to the text, but this is wildly off. Maybe <laughs> D- Disney Leaf was the cinematographer and knew it was something in copy. This is where you have to kind of jump off and guess about how copies got made. So you almost yeah. have to leave a hole and say somehow, and I did a lot of talking about this in Elegant Complexity, somehow copies got made. And, so is it was it buried in his head or in there? He says in that con- Jim says in that conversation with his son that he mentions that there's something in his head. Yeah, but this is before the film was made. So some there's something supposed, and it could Jim was you know he could be crazy talking in that right. episode. But there, but what I found curious is that Jim went away after the film was made and before mm-hmm. his death. He mm-hmm. died uh, shortly after the film was made. He went off somewhere for some kind of surgery. And it always made me wonder, well, did, did he take oh. those things out of his head and implant uh-huh. the master in his head or no, or was it just buried in the casket? Again, these are things we don't know. It, wow. it could be that it is implanted in his head or, and some people say, well, was an antidote to the film implanted in his right. head? Who, uh, you know, there's no way to know these things definitively, but, as a minimum, the master would be in the casket. Was it in his head or not? Maybe because they, the dream, Hal's remembrance and Gately's vision of the future uh-huh. both have you know them 
pulling something out of the casket and the one image is of it being Jim's head and Hal saying, Gately's dream of Hal saying, too late. Like someone has already gotten the film. Right. But how did anyone know it was in the casket other than the lawyers, Avril and Mario? Because Oren supposedly didn't know and didn't tell the Canadian terrorists that the film was in the casket. <laughs> right. And, but did, did Jim want Hal to dig it up and get it? Like, how was... How was Jim to give this magical right. film to his, his son? I uh, That's another. Maybe he had made it for Hal and then realized it. It was dangerous. It was dangerous or, yeah, why would he bury it? Why would he not? Maybe he wanted to leave it for Hal, but it was dangerous. Again, <laughs> there is, I try to quote some text when I'm giving an opinion. Yeah, right. We're in a realm now where it's very hard to say we're giving a, uh, a definitive interpretation because it's hard to find quotes to attach to. You know, I, in the end of my book, I, I tried to attach some of the things I'm saying to some quotes from the book that yeah. you can look up. Yeah, and, and it's- But that's it, yeah. You know, he said it was for how, but he buried it. So what, you know, yeah. And then, and and that is what is like amazing about Infinite Jest is you finish it, you realize the, an- the quote unquote answers are in the first 100 pages, 50 pages maybe, even with the interview and then the dream and- so then, mate, what's your story, right? The fact that, like, he's hospitalized and we're going to attempt to tell what happened. Um, but to understand it, it's really this willful suspension of disbelief. And having a, a knowledge of Hamlet is, a, is, is very important, too, how he's trying to emulate that, right, a little bit. He's, uh, yeah, there's a lot of references and a lot of overlap. I don't think it's a revenge plot you know because jim yeah he made this he's not uh saying avenge my death i mean there's a mystery as to uh, you know jim's suicide by putting his head in the microwave but mm-hmm. who left him the wild turkey with the bow by the microwave yeah who, so but instead of talking about revenge when 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 the goat the wraith you know the the ghost of, of hal's father appears it's all about it's a it's a much more positive you know, lessons learned we need to reach each other story yeah you know from from jim the wraith and it's to gately not how so <laughs> and, and, well and it's also interesting learning about wallace's life the athlete the, the the sober person the teacher you know like those three things in the three locations or and his maybe i don't know how much we can t- tap into wallace's connection with the canadian separatists uh, but but definitely the recovery house and and um, Enfield right like that they're all pieces of himself so maybe Gately being reached is purposeful right because he's himself being reached by the power of of choosing action over stasis in writing yeah. a book like this it's a broad interpretation and it the like he probably Gately can't move at the time yeah and so the the you know the Wraith has a captive audience because <laughs> Gately and, and Gately is in a state where he can perceive maybe, you know, he's in a different state. He's, mm. you know, recovering from the gunshot wound and is able to listen instead of flitting around like everybody else. <laughs> okay. So this, this is a very good start. So there's this cartridge that gets created somehow. Which, and there's no problem for years because he died in, I'm going to just say 2004 year trial size dove bar. I yeah. call it 2004. And, you don't know anything about the cartridge for years. And then there's a few cities where something seems to be happening. Right. And 
one of the either it's either Marath's the Canadian terrorist spy or the or the United States uh, 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 USO the sort of like CIA FBI the USOUS um, the United States Office of Unspecified Services um, they somebody thinks that or it's Orrin Howe's brother that's that's doing this as a revenge yeah thing but it it is very Orrin just doesn't seem to be as checked in to I mean, I don't think Oren, uh, the guy, the the medical attache that died on April the first, received uh, received a cartridge in the mail. This so this is two thousand nine. Okay, there's there's it there's hints of something happening with the film uh, before then that are contained, uh, but then this medical attache receives it, watches it. The people that that come to check on all oh, what uh, there's ends up being dozens of people surrounding this video and now it's a big thing that the government's needing to cover up or check into yeah but it who sent that and they think it may be Oren, but Oren just and because it was mailed from arizona where Oren's from mm-hmm. but it to me it seems more likely that avril jim's wife who is canadian from the same county as some of the uh, quebecois terrorists yeah. are from um would be behind it but there's no way to prove it, it says that she doesn't she hasn't left the grounds since Jim's been like, she could have mailed it to Arizona and someone else mailed it. Her and Oren are not on speaking terms for uh-huh. years. Right, so the right. pieces, you would you would think it would need to be one of them or the the terrorists themselves, but but the terrorists don't really find a, a copy of the of the uh, entertainment, the terroristic entertainment that they can use until months after this attache incident. Right. Um so how did we're getting to the end? Back to the middle. How did there must have been? I think there must have been copies in Jim's lab, maybe stored away that people forgot, or like, and then taking the trash. The kids, the young kids at the tennis academy, take the trash out. Yeah, and I'm thinking that maybe videos came out. Of, you know, they were trying to take them to the trash, and some fell out of the sack. And then uh-huh. Clinette, who works at Ennett House. The, um, one of their in it house jobs is to to uh, be janitors for the tennis academy across the street. They get the videos in the trash. Clinette turns it in, says, "Hey, check these out." Marath, the spy, when he's trying to find Joelle, sees mm. those videos on the shelf in in it house. Mm. And then later they say there's there's some hint that Hal went to in it house one day to ask for information. And there's a in that section there's a there's a hint that something went on at Ennett after the story after the book closes and we don't know yeah apparently something happened at Ennett House and then there's also mention of a continental emergency like like the the uh, terroristic film the film you can't look away from has disseminated but right there is no way to because conc- there's that gap of a year between what we know is happening and then how's opening statement where no one can understand him. Yeah. But apparently things are going on. I mean, the uh, subsidized time is no longer and things have had radical changes. Oh, you know, because yeah. there's a note that says the year of glad is the last year of subsidized time. Does that, you know, what does that mean that, you know, cause gentle is in the middle of his presidency. How right. why would things change? What? So there's a mystery of, what happened? You know, one. How did the original piece get 
copied enough to to come back at this time years later to be an object of terror. But wow. there's just there's so many hints that yeah. you that it's hard to connect the pieces. I, right. I, I tried to spell out a range of possibilities that could have happened. Yeah, you know what? What about when um, they go to rob the man and they accidentally uh, suffocate him? Right, Gate, it, Gately when he's still a criminal before he's come to Innit House. The guy that they killed was uh, the leader of all the uh, Canadian terrorist organizations, uh, Duplessis. Yeah. And uh, this guy, yeah, the guy that got smothered, the uh, Gailey's partner, uh, is it, I think it's Tom Kite, took the videos and sold them to a guy named 60s Bob who sold them to the Antitois, which is where hmm. Marath and the, and, the, and the wheelchair assassins find videos. And even then... It's not definitively that it could have come from that burglary because one of the Antitois were watching the films and, and didn't see an object of terror, but maybe that he just didn't get through all of them. Right, but right. That, that seems to be a path that Duplessis had a copy and then the Canadian terrorists eventually found it because it was in the Antitois shop. So could Duplessis have gotten it from someone at Ennett House? Well, or, or Jim, Enfield, I mean? Jim in the... In the uh, conversation with Hal real, says his family is connected to Duplessis, which Duplessis' lover is Luria Perec, mm. who was from the same county as Avril, mm. and they're all Canadian. So I would think that Avril would be the tie. But right. you just, I noted in the book, just like in, in Hamlet, you can't definitively say how much complicity Gertrude had. Right. How much did Gertrude know about? <laughs> King Hamlet's death. Right. Is she clueless or did she know what Claudius was doing? You cannot prove from the text, as far as I've been able to tell, how much Avril was involved. You know, was Avril part of this terrorist thing? Yeah. Or not? Did she? Because as soon as you say, well, maybe Avril left him the alcohol to get him, you know, to lead him to suicide, but she was the one that drove him to the detox that he had just before he died. So it's, yeah, the, the the facts never line up. You can't, yeah, you can't be sure beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. right. <laughs> and that's what makes the thing so interesting. Yeah. Because I feel like right now it's like, well, let's just take a minute, look through the book, we'll find it. <laughs> you know, if we could just read it again and find it. But but it's set up for you not to be able to solve it, but to also always feel like that you can. Right. right. <laughs> like you can always have that focus. So that's, I think that's part of the, some of Wallace's philosophical study. Mm. And, and setting things up like a logic problem and, and putting these factors in place that will keep you that, you know, it's guaranteed to keep you thinking about it. He was a big fan of Wittgenstein, right? Like, and yeah. what, do you know much about Wittgenstein's philosophy? All that I've read, and this is why I love reading Wallace. It, 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 because of Wallace, I went and read Wittgenstein's yeah. you know, two, two most famous uh, uh, philosophical works. But no, it's just his interpretation of it. I, you know, I don't find direct correlations. There are. I'm just not philosophically astute enough to to make these connections. But well, he basically isn't it like language can't completely emulate reality. Yeah, yeah. That's, and so maybe that we can extrapolate that the, the language of the book can't emulate this made up reality he yeah. made. Just yeah, maybe just as our it. language, we can interpret things how we wish, and that you can't always put definitive proof on things yeah so i would think some of those those philosophical theories are kind of lead toward the composition of the book that proves that for us indirectly do you have a 
favorite character, Greg, from Infinite Jest? It's hard because there's hundreds. Yeah, right. Um, I I don't think so. I, I love I yeah. love them all. <laughs> That's fair. That's <laughs> it's hard, fair. Yeah, it's hard to to pick one out. And it's interesting how the characters all. It, sometimes you lose track of who's talking when, but does, sometimes that doesn't matter. I found you know what I mean. Like I'd really try to make sure I knew, but. It's just letting the experience wash over you, right? Like the entertainment. Yeah, I think. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. the, the narrator, I call it the narrator for whoever's speaking, because it it's third person narration, but it's so into the head of who they're talking about, uh, Hal or Pemulus or whoever. Yeah. That. Yeah, it you lose track of who's talking, but the narr- the narrator is so intrusive that you kind of always know what's going on, and even. When Wallace wants to make you know a three-page, two hundred-word sentence, or he his syntax is so well done that you never have to stop and figure out what does this refer to. It, again, you don't want to stop and look back and figure out who's talking because it's so interesting and it's easy enough to follow that you just go through. Yeah, yeah, it's it's good. It's that's what I enjoy about it. It's so fun to read. There's such great imagery and all the little details that trying to figure things out. It's just kind of the fun thing that comes after. Throughout the book, what concrete chronological movements does the entertainment go through getting? Well, the, the film was, was made right before Jim's death. So that's, I think that was 2004. If I'm, it's been a while since I've checked into this, but um, so then after Jim's death, there is a lull before there's a hint of this mysterious cartridge showing up um, as a couple of years later. So they're, yeah. There must have been um, copies made uh, before his death. Okay. Because it's supposed to have gone into his casket and then someone removed it. And so, okay. you know, so there's the, the original master eventually removed. But be- before, uh, I guess there could be a theory that it was removed from his casket and and copies were made from that like maybe nothing happened between then uh isn't isn't also the theory that the master couldn't have been viewed by the canadians who had it stolen from them by the the, because it's the master the master has to have special equipment to be viewed yeah a copy is viewed on our regular like our regular vcr yeah yeah you know so so yeah so the the master is one entity and from that special machine you can make copies if you have the right equipment. But yeah. then if you make a copy, it can be watched on regular equipment. Yeah. So if you watch the master on regular equipment, you don't see anything. Can you make a copy of a copy or only from the master? Only from the master. So and there's only one master. That's why they call it a copy capable master. Uh, okay. Yeah. So you can only yeah, you can only make copies from the master. So there must have been either in the either copies were made before he died or there was a master left in the in the in the lab right or or someone got it from his casket mm-hmm. early enough that then they could use that master to make copies but it wouldn't have been the canadian terrorist it would have to be someone like avril who knew saying it but there's just no proof of that we know the casket the film's gone from the casket but ideas of who could have gotten it from the casket that is impossible to figure out it right. just seems no one seems to have the motive or there doesn't seem to be a clue or any kind of hint in the text for how that would have happened. Okay. So it's out and it the first guy to come to 
a sad end by watching is the medical attache. Is that the first There's, reported one? Uh, there were cart there were cartridges in four cities. I, I, I just I reread back over what I'd written at the end. There was something in a Berkeley. Yeah. Although although that may be happening at the same time as the attache, and then there is something in some like Tempe, Arizona, and uh-huh. and somewhere in Louisiana, and then the Boston event of the medical attache. Yeah, uh, and that all seems to link to Oren because Oren used to play football in New Orleans, and then he moves to the Cardinals. So things point to Oren. But can you can you see? <laughs> it just seems strange. Yeah, Oren just I just didn't seem like Oren would do the terror. It seems much more likely that Avril would be sending the thing as an object of terror. And maybe it was a sign of love for her late husband as a way to show him that she loved him by sending out his experiment. That's yeah, the theory, it, well, it, but the thing is, she was having an affair with the medical attaché. Right. So, and he right. must have broken it because he got married. You uh, figure okay. out from the, you know, he got married uh, and maybe she was upset about that. Okay. Or maybe, you know, and it, the, the cartridge was, Labeled happy anniversary, and it was in the medical. I tell you, Shay watched it on April the 1st, was the anniversary of Jim's death. Oh, wow! So it's some kind of revenge, or you yeah. know, we don't think that happens there. So, talking with you about this means that if you don't, as a reader, if you don't have all the answers, that's okay because no one has all the answers, and, and that's like a yeah. for people listening to this who are maybe thinking about tackling the book. You can be fearless because even an expert on the book is open. You to can make your own. You'll feel like you can make your own connection, which is great. And then when you do, post it online, and I'll look at it and go, "Oh my god, they finally figured it out." I feel like that's still going to happen, even though I know it's set up not to happen. I still feel like that's going to happen. I'm going to read something online that's go, "Oh my god, they solved it." <laughs> <laughs> so this all happens, and then chronologically, the. Um, Canadian separatists want to get their hands on this right. so they, they know can about use it, it. And they want to use it to disseminate it across. And that's where all the philosophy is, you know, uh, the American thinks it's cruel. And the Canadian says, oh, I'm just offering it. It's the American sensibility that that makes this choice to to uh, give themselves over to it like we do with Facebook. Like I was saying about I'm doing with Facebook before, but thank God right. it's only like 45 minutes at a time instead of, you know, days at a time. Uh, I have a choice. I'm sitting there. I should be able to make the choice to get off of that. So there's this debate about the American psyche between the American and the and the Quebecois. But it, they don't but the yeah. Quebecois terrorists, the the, uh, the wheelchair, there are many terrorist organizations, the wheelchair assassins are who I'm talking about. The wheelchair assassins do not fight he acts like he has uh, a copy bluffing to the American. They do not find a copy they can use until uh, November of 2009. The attaché designs okay. in April of 2009. The Canadians don't find something they can use until November 2009. So okay. I, I don't think it was the Canadians that's then when they wouldn't to the Middle Eastern attaché. They're trying to terrorize the United States. Right, right. But I don't... The, so I think that... I think it's... That's probably the route that leads to the continental emergency. Something happens between November of 2009 and November 2010 I'm thinking continental emergency must mean that, and and they're making that funny commercial about don't watch this video if it comes to you. Yeah, you know. So it's I I think the government, United States government, marketing people are prepared for it. Something must happen with it, uh, but I, I I hesitate to speculate on what on what all could have happened when the thing goes nationwide. And they are trying to get very close to the Incandenza family 
by any means necessary right because they think that's where they can find that's where the terrorists think they can find a copy but they've got avril who's who has links to duplessis yeah and all and the and the whole terrorist organization so yeah. you would think that they would maybe she's not a terrorist you know they they would seems like they would just talk to her and not the canadians would seem like they would just talk to avril or get maybe after duplessis died they're trying to get close to her i'm not sure it's yeah strange and I wonder if Oren's relationship with the Canadian terrorist, the transgender one, if that, what's his name or her name? Right. Steeply. Steeply. Hugh Steeply is going undercover as Helen Steeply. Yeah. But Oren to me just seems, when he talks to Hal about, he's clueless about that, that he, she is undercover. Yeah. You know, Oren just seems a little too self-motivated to, to have a lot of scheme in this, but, but yeah. several factors lead to him being the one to be able to do it too. So I don't know. And he does give how a mysterious phone call early in the book. That's very strange. Yeah. Quoting Beatle lyrics and stuff in the early yeah. part of the book. Yeah. So that's like, what, what's up with that? So, well, and then meanwhile, there's all this supernatural stuff at Enfield with the Wraith that, um, who supposedly can't move objects, he says, but then he brings Gately the Coke can from China and then stuff's being moved around. Yeah. In Ortho Stice's room. <laughs> so, yeah. Again, it's like you say you can't move things, but things are being associated with you being around Wraith, Jim. <laughs> and and so then there's this there's this question of um, whether the Madame Psychosis on Hal's toothbrush causes him to go over the edge. Yeah, later, there's right? my I have the uh, unexciting theory that Hal did not watch the video. Hal did not take the DMZ drug that's also called Madame Psychosis, just like Joel's character. Yeah. I say that his isolation is because he stopped using marijuana. Right. And I, I pointed to a lot of clues for that. I, I think it's near impossible that he watched the film because if you, there's a lot of references to films being labeled or unlabeled to track that. But then if he watched it, wouldn't he still be watching it? I mean, right. or is it since he made it for Hal, would Hal be the one that can watch it and it not affect? But I think the clues to Hal watching the video are very low. Now, because there is a chance that he took that drug because there's a brief moment where he, he has a NASA glass that he keeps a toothbrush in. Uh-huh. And at one point, that's he leaves that and he gets it back later. So someone could have dosed it. But at that time, no one knew where the drug was but Pemulus. He had put it in a ceiling tile. Okay, yeah. And it, it's missing from the ceiling tile, and Pamulus doesn't know who got it. Uh-huh. And only four people knew it was there. And I don't think the other people... So did the Wraith get it? Did the Wraith put something on the toothbrush to get him to do it? But it, the effects of the DMZ are described as being pretty horrific but and psychically damaging, but then they're... But, I think, but then it goes... I guess there are some theories that it kind of leaves you fuddled, befuddled. But to me, it's... It seems more likely that Hal's, because the book is so much about the effect of drugs on you, that that it's that his crutch for being able to communicate face to face is gone, and so when the marijuana is gone, he retreats oh. into himself. Yeah, because when he narrates to us in the first chapter, he's very lucid and eloquent, and we can follow him, but the administrators can't follow what he's doing because he just seems to be moving tennis wise and saying things they can't understand. Yeah. So I think it's because he's so into his head that, that he's retreated. He, he doesn't have that bridge to be even make any kind of social connection, but that, you know, some people just, you know, he took the drug. So it's, you know, and that's again, both 
possibilities are there. You're just going to have to – I choose that I think he's in withdrawal from marijuana. A lot of people choose that he took the drug. So it's – you know, you have to read the text and see what – what you think your best answer is. Is it related to the mold he ate as a kid too, maybe? There's the drug itself is like a is mold based. And then there is that sequence where Oren Hal doesn't remember, but Oren tells him that he ate this mold as a child. Yeah. And did so did that ingestion of that mold stick around and get triggered by the DMZ. Another clue wow. where you don't know. But there's yeah. also supposed to have been steroids in his cereal at that time as well. Not related to the drug by There's, himself or someone put by it in, by uh, Avril putting steroids in his cereal to make according him to that conversation early in the book between Jim and Young Hal. Oh my gosh! So <laughs> so we do know that though that Jim made the entertainment as a way to reach Hal. Is that's that, what he. T- that's what Wraith Jim tells Gately in his hospital bed. Right, yes. right, right, right. Okay, okay. So moving so forward, which is odd because it's supposed to make Hal reach out, yeah. but the video itself is infantilized. It makes people want to sit there like a baby and be taken yeah. care of. So so maybe Jim, who couldn't hear Hal talk, and is like, Dad, I'm talking to you. Maybe he had a strange idea about, why would Jim think that this movie that, that makes you feel like a baby is going to bring you out of your shell? It's just, what? Yeah. So. <laughs> it's, it's very confusing. Yeah. But, but that, maybe it's a way of... Hopefully hit- this is making your listeners... Say, well, I'll figure this out. There's enough clues here. I'll read it and figure it out. <laughs> they'll tell. They'll give us the answers. Um, so, j- so moving along, it becomes this like these errant characters looking for the entertainment and all trying to find answers from each other. And it seems like a lot of the like the serpent. How do you say it? Serpensky gas. Serpensky gas. Serpensky gasket is that these infinite triangles, right? But they all benefit from coming together. The interactions between. Well, it's, it's connected in the triangle geometry. Yeah. But as it, with each iteration, one triangle becomes three smaller triangles and a hole. Something's right. going to be missing. So as you go further, you get more and more detail. Inside the triangle, there's more details. And then inside of that, one of three is more detail. But as you keep going further, holes accompany each new depth of detail. Right. <laughs> to Infinitely. Yes, and that's in, an interesting connection to the t- title too. And um, you talk about in the introdu- introduction how that's like the Triforce from Zelda, right? Do you mention that? I don't. That's I Triforce that? Zelda's not me. Oh, that's probably that's somebody else. But like there's a million theories. <laughs> that, that that like that. I have a song about the Triforce. The, you know the triangles that have the triangle in the middle, the yeah. upside down. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they all, but but all three, the terrorists, the the recovery house, and Enfield, they all benefit from knowing each other, and the story becomes the lives of these people as they all try to piece this mystery together. And then it culminates with Gately staying sober until the end. Right. And that becomes, he, we think he does when yeah. he goes into the hospital, he's desperately trying to get them not to give him morphine, even though he's recovering from a bullet wound. So let's but talk. He's ab- like the heroic character, how the, how he gets shot. Let's talk about the, that real quick. That was just, uh, that didn't have to do with the entertainment. That was yeah. just one of the in it residents, uh, was causing trouble, and well, it kind of does because yeah. he one of Randy Lenz, um, uh, killed the dog of a rival Canadian terrorist organization, not the wheelchair assassins, oh, but so the FLQ. Know. So the oh. FLQ organization 
came after Gately yeah. not having anything to, they were a Canadian terrorist organization, but it has nothing to do with the film. Oh, wow. It's just, this guy killed my dog, I'm going to kill you. And Gately had to protect the people in the house. You know, and they were all moving their cars and it was chaos. Right. Yeah. Of, because of the rules, they caught them at midnight at the car, the, the switching hour. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of the witching hour. Yeah. So that, and so Gately was shot. Okay. And that's how he goes into the hospital and sets him up to be still enough where he can ref- Wallace can use the final sections of the book for Gately to reflect on his life because he has all these memories coming mm-hmm. back and forth of his childhood and and time gets kind of amorphous. It's very difficult to figure out what's happening when in that book because uh, he's remembering his past, things are happening in the present, and things are jumping around. Yeah. but And your listeners may be going, why if, if they've said 30 confusing things about the plot of this book, would I care to read it? It's because it, the thematic, this sense of working together to solve something or to address or to understand the core and essence of human loneliness and, and, and addiction and isolation, uh, it's a way to, to, to uh, kind of understand or get into that. And what we haven't talked about is often the book is hilariously funny. It, it, that's very true. There's a lot of very funny things that happen in the book. So. And like um, the Eschaton chapter, which your book oh, is God, named after. Yes, yes. The elegant complexity of that. Do you have a, a scene that to you is the funniest scene from the book? But, well, I, one of my favorite scenes is the Eschaton scene. Yeah. Funniest it could be Eschaton, but I'm try- there's so many funny places I'm trying to think of uh, how that comes to mind. I don't know the the going over the the video, like trying to warn against that when they're 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 trying to make a video that that helps you not learn how not to watch uh, the entertainment. That one's pretty funny. There's a lot of funny things all the way through, uh, little moments here and there. And it, I I remember reading Wallace's interviews about the book. He says, "Oh, it's not supposed to be funny." But I it's hard for me to believe that he didn't think certain things were. He says it's more sad than funny, which might be yeah, true. No, I, I believe it is more sad than funny, but page to page, the things that happen are very funny. Yeah. <laughs> but then when you look back, it kind of uh, accurately takes the pulse of, of an American malaise that is quite sad. <laughs> and that he – did you ever watch um, The End of the Tour? Yeah, yeah. And he ta- he, when he tells um, the author about how – Really, there's this American identity that if you just work hard enough, if you just do enough, if you just, if you just practice enough, if you just you know study enough, you can solve what's deeply wrong inside of you, right? Remember, that's like a final thing yeah. he tells um, the author about why he wrote it, and wondering if you think that's true, if that's a theme in this book that like the infinite desire to improve ourselves is like this American malady, or you know, well, there's. The American dream, I see it as kind of a poisonous phrase because there's a theater major here again. Yeah. Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman. Willie believes the American dream and it doesn't come through from Edward Albee has a play called The American Dream. And it kind of taught, we we have an idea of how in America, of, of, of this kind of how things are that it's not always tied to reality. And, uh, you know, now in our current political situation, we we are so divorced from reality, and I and I think maybe social media that helped like on my feed is all the stuff that made, yeah I that's right my feed is giving my stuff that validates me and and yeah. other, it, all we get is things that validate us and I, I don't get to. 
be persuaded by your opinion. And it's really putting us way out. But then, so now the, this vision of the American dream from whatever side you're on is starting to become kind of poisonous because it's not, because it's not complete. Mm. And there's, I think there's always been, even before social media with these old plays I'm talking about, there's this idea of what things are, but that's not the truth. And really the truth is more in day to day what you're doing. And it's, I, I like the model of this book because we, the, the, the point is not the answer. The point is like the day-to-day reading of it and the, yeah. and the fact that you and I can sit here and have this hour conversation yeah. and enjoy it. I mean, if, if the book was easily solvable, we wouldn't be having this conversation. We that's wouldn't true. get to meet each other and talk about it because <laughs> yeah, you know, it would just be, oh, I know this. I'll go into the next thing. I'll go into the next thing in my feed. <laughs> it, it, it asks more, the book asks more questions than it answers maybe. Or, it, or asks enough questions to make, to make us want to talk about it, right? Yeah, or there's a... There's infinite, like, because they have all those meetings where people tell their story about how they hit rock bottom. And right. there's always, you know, everybody, what's your story? Everybody's yeah, got yeah. their story. Yeah. And it's the idea is just kind of attending maybe to these stories. And it's a book that I guess we can end talking, like, end this talking about, like, why we recommend people to read it. And I guess you've kind of touched on that. Any, any other reasons why you would, like, recommend fans to, re- to read it for the first time? I think um, I would do like I did. If you like, if you read a supposedly fun thing, I'll never do again. The, the actual essay, the you can find it was called "Shipping Out." A shorter version of it is called "Shipping Out" in Harper's Magazine. If you can find that on Harper's online, or read that long. It's a hundred-page essay, the full essay in the in the book, the title mm-hmm. essay of that book. If you like that voice, that is hilarious on every page. It's funny, but it's also got kind of a. Uh, mistrustful view of how things go. The, the, the essay is about how Wallace feels pampered to death on a cruise and it, it makes him uncomfortable that he's being pampered, uh, which causes for a lot of, of humor. He's a little judgmental throughout it, but it's very funny judgmental. It's yeah, uh, I guess heading toward blog post meanness, but not quite there. So it's not <laughs> terrible as offensive, but it's very funny. Yeah. Um, and if you like that voice, if you feel like what it felt like to me is that he gets to like the honest truth. Like it's like a voice inside your head instead of an outside voice being quite truthful about what's happening in the moment. That's what draws me to the writing. And it, that kind of honesty of that essay, I think prepared me. If you start reading infinite jest, it's going to feel confusing because it, he takes the first couple hundred pages, just giving you 300 characters, you know, just, right. Just all this, it's hard to see where it's going until later. And that might be frustrating. It wasn't for, to me, it, it was so fun to read. It didn't buy, I would be flipping back, but then I just give, I don't want to flip back. I'm enjoying reading it so much. I'll figure it out later. Yeah. But I would see if you like the voice. Um, just, yeah, just see if it's, it's, if it's a voice that you connect with. There's a lot of this latest wave of Wallace criticism is a little backlash about, you know, he's so, uh, very much a white male, you know, and even I'm reading some new scholarship, even on like in signifying rappers where he tries to qualify. Well, look, I'm just a white male talking about this. Yeah. They, there's some essays talking about how that's disingenuous as well. And I, I think that's, I mean, it's fine. And you, there are some problems with that, with that kind of, uh, um, privileged perspective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there's still, even recognizing that, or if you go into that and you, some people get offended by that kind of, they kind of feel that white privilege coming out in them when they read now. But even that, once if you know that's there, you can get to what's underneath that that's meaningful to everyone or funny to everyone or 
or honest for everyone. And it seems people get to the Wardeen section where he's doing the African-American voice, right? Yeah, and I think that's just a a kind of a – I've said that on the other podcast yeah. where I'm um, on the Great Concavity podcast where I think he was trying to do something based in empathy, but there's no way to look at a, a white man trying to speak as an African-American and see that as empathetic. It's just not going to be seen that way. So – it is, you know, it is what it is. It's an attempt at something positive, but it cannot be seen that way. Or, or, or maybe it was a bad, maybe it was a choice. Maybe he should have found another way to do that. Yeah. Given he, he was a very intelligent guy. He could see how that was going to be interpreted. Or maybe in 1996, he didn't see how that was going to be interpreted, but he, he could have in 1996 and maybe gone about it a different way. I still think it was hard to authentically get inside the terror of that situation mm. without that voice. But I also see why people would complain about it. It makes complete sense. Do you think if that book, if Infinite Just were to come out tomorrow, would it still have the effect that it had in 1996? Well, I think if it did, I would have to do the Twin Peaks thing. It would have to be a new thing that was rooted in the nostalgia of the old, but it would have to be a new thing. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I think it, there are many scholars that talk about it as very much a product of its time. Right, right. You know, very yeah. much a product of its time. Um, and we forget that uh, one of, you know, Marshall Boswell, one of the the kings of the Wallace criticism, <clears throat> speaks about that a lot, how Wallace was one of many people writing at that time. Um, for me, he kind of stands out as a unique thing, but for a lot of, uh, I'm a theater guy, a lot of yeah. English, guy, a lot of literary people very much see Wallace as part of a particular time period and there's some scholarship that 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 speaks to that a great deal but, mm. and you can you know if you're interested you can find scholarship on all topics now there's it's blown up where there's a, a wide range of, of topics about wallace that you can read i read the biography about him every um love story is a ghost story yeah and learning that his pain and in, in not being able to create another book that was as commercially loved and critically adored as infinite jest was a big part of his depression later in his life and i'm wondering yeah what, what what do you think of like his other works and well he you know writing the stories in oblivion those are i think are extraordinary because <clears throat> instead of having the pressure of a novel it's like i'm just gonna write a short story anywhere from you know three to a hundred pages the efficiency maturity amazing ability to get at some of the things he was talking about in this book kind of down in a certain, that short story limit uh, produced magnificence, right? With Pale King writing a novel, he felt, it's like he felt like he couldn't, he needed to encompass it. This is me talking. I'm not basing this on anything. Yeah. It's um, that he wanted to get it all in there and it was hard to essentialize it. In Infinite Jest, it's, it's not, there is a core essence about the book thematically, I think. I think that's what grounds it. But the story, the plot, as you've discovered if you've been listening with us this long, <laughs> is it does it just kind of it's hard to tie up or contain. Yeah. The containment of Infinite Jest is in its themes. Yeah. And um and I think he was trying to deal with the Pale King, but he couldn't, it's like he couldn't express what he wanted to say because it's hard to nail down the truth. It this is the truth. Boom. You know, it's it's everywhere, and yeah. I think he had. A, I think he was struggling to wrap what he wanted to say into a contained thing because it was a novel. It could be as long as you want, sure. You know, 
Yeah. If it's, it's short stories, you know, okay, I've, I got to do this. And so I will with the novel, there's that permission to, you know, I think he wanted to have that, the containment of a short story in the novel form. I mean, it was just wouldn't coalesce because when you're trying to speak of the truth, we, we've been sitting here trying to get at something <laughs> about this novel. And yeah. You just have to keep talking around and it's like you could talk forever, try to contain it and it keeps looping. And I think that's probably what was going on with the pale game. The idea of circumlocution, right? You speak around something as a way to describe it, but you never quite get you it. Can't, yeah, it's like if you could, it wouldn't be what we're talking about. It would be something simpler. <laughs> Do you? What do you recommend fans after they read Infinite Jest, if they've read some of his nonfiction and then Infinite Jest, what should they follow up with? And I guess, what should I read next? You know, what do you think? Wow. I Well, it, since you... Since you have read Infinite Jest and didn't throw it against the wall and quit, <laughs> you can read anything. Yeah. If you if you haven't read the big stuff, to me, it, for the first-time reader, I would try those supposedly fun thing and then some short stories. Oblivion are the, the best, I think. Okay. I haven't read Oblivion, so... Oblivion yeah. are the finest examples. If you want to save the best for last, then go through the other short stories. Okay. Um, Did you like... Uh, I'm, if, I'm if I'm recommending to you, I would probably say Oblivion just because okay. of how great they are. Yeah, Pale King, because it is the... it's Yeah, unfinished novel, but it's still... I would... If I'm going to... Just a personal opinion, if I'm ranking the best works... I'm always going to love Infinite Jest, Oblivion, and I would, I would, fiction. I'd probably put Pale King next. Those essay, I love all the essays too. Those are fun to read. So I, my recommendation to you: fiction, go to Oblivion. Essays, okay. go to a supposedly fun thing, and did, then you'll want to read all the essays. Did you do you recommend Broom of the System? Yeah, it now it's the first novel. It it's clearly him doing his first thing, but it's yeah. still great. Okay. Yeah, I would. It's clearly earlier okay but it's still fun to read so yeah. that later <laughs> read that later i would i would i would go to oblivion supposedly fun thing next did you see the the brief interviews with hideous men movie i i did i see all of it i know i saw part of it yeah yeah i enjoyed what i saw i think i saw all of it yeah do you think they could ever turn infinite jest into a movie speaking of that i i would want it to be a long form yeah you know like a <laughs> right. like a, a series um, a Game of Thrones you know, or something. Yeah, just film it all and, and air it in 50, 52 episodes and call it Year of Glad, show one a week. Uh, no, you get, um, when you change mediums, you have to change some things and there's such purists about the book, it would be hard to please everyone. Mm. I think if you've got it in the hands of someone who is only changing things when they have to, uh, I think it could be great. Um, it, and if you, if, if it was a lynch, if we could do like Twin Peaks where people are like, lynch just went, I'm not going to, you're not going to be able to make sense of this. I'm just putting it out there for these images and, and, and for the uh, feeling I want you to have and yeah. thoughts about time stream and how things could go. If you're like, if it's like that, where you don't have to make it, you don't have to resolve it. If you could do it like the new Twin Peaks and, mm -hmm. and keep it unresolved, that would be great. I would, I would watch it. You know, I'm, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to judge actors. You know, yeah. this goes back to the, 
when I remember when uh, Tom Cruise was going to be an interview with the vampire and everyone was like dissing him. Yeah. But then, you know, for the time he did a really good job. Anne Rice took out a full page ad apologizing and saying he did a great job and stuff like that. Oh, wow. And yeah. so people were harshing on oh, Jason Siegel. Siegel? Jason yeah. Siegel. Um, when, they were harshing on him like he's going to not be good as well. But I, I thought he did a fine job. Yeah, I mean, my great. wife and I finished watching it and I, I called up the Charlie Rose interview and she, and she goes, oh yeah, he did a great job. I mean, yeah. you know, you could see that and, I, you know, I... Actors are doing their their best, and uh, yeah, I I think they would do. I, I don't have judgment about that unless I, I thought End of the Tour did a pretty good job. The complaints that I've read online that people have, I'm like, oh yeah, I can see why you'd say that. I, I can kind of see both sides. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I get why you would complain about that. But on the other hand, I'm like, you know, it, it's in a different medium, so I yeah. I can handle. I would love to see Infinite Jest. I would love to read an Infinite Jest graphic novel. Oh. Yes, I would. That and, would be uh, amazing. I, there, that that could be a thing that definitely happens. That could and, be uh, easier than a movie, huh? I've, um, <laughs> uh, I, we should the community should beg should beg for an infinite jazz graphic novel. I think we would get one if we beg for it. That is that is a very that's a great because that's a great form that you can have and, and you can play with it in different styles and narration. Did you have you seen the online one where the dad and his son did infinite jazz scenes with Legos? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. pretty good. Yes. <laughs> like the fact that there's so much um great there's so much interpretive art trying to make sense of this book. It's 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 it makes me think that in a hundred years people might talk about it and like Moby Dick, you know. I, I hope so. I don't know who knows, but maybe it will, you know. Well, it's definitely it's it's tapped into something. And it's and it's structurally complex and revealing. It's like a a new way of writing. I think part of the reason that people love Ulysses is there was a there was a structural neatness, a structural puzzle that was new behind it. And I think that's why they love Moby Dick. There was this new well, no one's ever put all this detail about whaling in the midst of fiction. What's going yeah, on here? Right, and right, there's right. this, you know, the kind of innovative structural I'm mispronouncing structural today. We'll have to, mm. I'm going to say structural, and then you can edit this pro- correct pronunciation <laughs> back through my former mistakes. Um I think that's part of what will make it remembered. And Wallace being such an interesting guy, you know, like his, like, you know, how Kerouac, people look to him as a, a um, leader of the beats because his story and his image was, you know, unique, right? And so, yeah. do you ever bring in any of his short stories into your classes as a professor? What I've done, it's hard for you to do, I'm teaching theater classes, but um, I t- my seniors, uh, we have the senior capstone class. I have on a few occasions read This Is Water to oh, them because wow. it's a graduation speech. Yeah. You know, I usually end up crying through part of it, but <laughs> which is okay. Theater class, you can cry in theater class. It's totally normal. It's totally fine. Uh, and some classes don't let me mislead what's going on. But um, yeah, sometimes I'll read that just to get that voice. And sometimes people are like, wow, it's profound. And sometimes people are like, what? What did you just read? You know, it's kind of that. That thing, you know, sometimes people kind of, it resonates with people and yeah. sometimes it doesn't. So it just, you know, there's, yeah, that's kind of haunted. There's people make fun of people, people perhaps like you and I get so excited about Wallace that uh-huh. I was like, oh God, I got to read this. And that irritates people. So there's this joke about people trying to force Wallace on people, which I think is part of the uh, cliche that goes around with this. But I think, you know, beyond that cliche, you know, I had a, I had a teacher that talked about William Faulkner so much. I was thinking, I'll never read him in high yeah. school. But then you read him and it's like, oh, there's some great stuff under here. So it's it's just, you know, don't 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 believe the hype to <laughs> get it back to the rap um, backgrounds. Decide for yourself instead of just trusting what people have said, you know. 
Yeah, there's um he talks about there's the burden of proof in his legend, right? And in Infinite Jest, it has to be a great book because it's so big and so discussed. <laughs> and so like as a teacher, you got to you have to just lay, lay these breadcrumbs and um hope that people find Wallace on their own and if it resonates with them, I'm sure it must be rewarding if they buy Elegant Complexity and want to talk to you about it and like Yeah, it's been a blessing. I, yeah. 12 years and people have, you know, uh, people like you want to come talk to me. It's yeah. wonderful. It's it's a great a great thing that happens. So. You have another book about his his fiction or Oblivion. I, yeah. I analyzed Oblivion, uh, the stories in Oblivion. Cool. It's, yeah, yeah. I got to get that. Yeah. And um and for anyone to, if there are theater people, I have a new book uh, on Edward Albee's plays. That's out. All published by uh, um, uh, Sideshow Media Group Press. Who do that? Well, one of the guys is involved with the podcast you were on, right? Yeah, yeah. Matt Booker, uh, John Booker uh, is the publisher out in California, and his brother Matt uh, lives in Austin and does the Great Concavity Podcast and and is the host of the Wallace L. List Serve and and uh, uh, part of the David uh, Foster Wallace International Society that published uh, the David Foster Wallace Journal now, one of the journals that's coming out. That's cool, yeah. Greg. Where can um, our audience keep in touch with you or follow you or uh, online? Well, and stuff? I always. I really don't. I don't. I used to have an online presence, but I'd, I would just say if you have questions, and I told the Great Concavity Podcast people they could do this too. Just email me at g. Carlisle at moreheadstate.edu, and if you have a question about Infinite Jest, I will um, loop around just as you've heard us doing here, <laughs> and I'll give you some loops to to explore if you have questions about the book. That's awesome. People can, you don't mind if they just email you. No, questions. you can email. I mean, you know, if I'm grading papers, you may have to wait a couple of days, yeah. but eventually, you know, usually I stop grading because I'm looking for an excuse to take a break and answer your question and then get back to what I was doing. So, well, thank you, Greg. I was hoping after we get off there, you, if you're down to sign my elegant complexity, that would be oh, a sure. lot to me. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, um, any final thoughts to end with or like um, any, I don't know, I guess, are you working on any upcoming books after? You know, I am, uh, I'm, t- I'm taking a long, long break from writing. I'm trying to enjoy reading again now without mm. thinking I have to comment on this now. So I'm catching up on a lot of comic books that I want to read. I'm about to, I'm about to get to direct Hamlet next year. So I'm very excited about that. And I should leave that alone to the summer, but I'm kind of tinkering around with that now because I'm so excited about it. That's awesome. <laughs> I have, I'll send you, I have a, a Hamlet song that, um, yes. I, is it all, oh, it's not on the, obviously not on the post CD. Uh, it's a, yeah. And it's, um, I'm such a big, a big Shakespeare fan too. So maybe we next interview, we can talk about our love for Shakespeare. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yes. I love that. Well, cool. Well, um, thank you, Greg. Really thank great you. to meet you, man. Good thank you for your you time. Too. Thank you. All right, cool. Greg Carlisle, ladies and gentlemen. It was just after four in the afternoon when the badgers in the hills began to snooze as the momras cried and Borogov dreamed. Silently they slept as the Jabberwocky screamed. Wow, sounds like something was awry. Burbling it back and I was straight up petrified. And the fish thought I waited, tossing, turning in my sleep. With my vorpal sword in hand, I heard the Jabberwocky creep. Snickersnack went the blade as he gambled in the wave. Whipping through the weird wood, they misunderstood my ways. Yet my mouth was agape, I let out such a yell. But the reason for this melting was a branch that it fell and it caught me on my noggin and I stood the kind of way maybe threw me as today so they choose to run away if they just give me a chance look beneath my broken steering and we'd have a frab to stay but things are getting eerier beware the jabberwock beware the jabberwocky beware the jabberwock 
Beware the Jabberwocky. Beware the Jabberwock. Beware the Jabberwocky. With jaws that bite and claws to catch. Beware the Jabberwock. Beware the Jabberwocky. Beware the Jabberwock. Beware the Jabberwocky. Beware the Jabberwock. Beware the Jabberwocky. With jaws that bite and claws to catch. Beware the Jabberwocky. He's known to catch a body. With fangs that bite and chew you up if you've been acting naughty. Galumping through the forest, snicker snacking with his crew. Cause the Jubjub bird is fuming and the bander snatches too. By the Tum Tum tree, um, Jabberwock appeared. With 47 teeth, black antennas for his ears. Eyes of flame, he howled at me. I struck him with my blade. Beamishly, I chortled MC Lars and saved the day. They call me Max. I'm far from handsome and the foe of all that's perfect. But I mind my Mimsy business. It's the rap of Monday Derby, dog. The Woods. I call my home as constant in my heart, but there's a thread at every corner, so you learn to move smart. Spot a boy, you was rapping, guess my looks have got a threat. A verbal tool of a simple question, don't you think you need protection? Cause it's dangerous to go along, galumping to an exit. In less than a second, my head is disconnected. Beware the Jabberwock, beware the Jabberwocky. Beware the Jabberwock, beware the Jabberwocky. Beware the Jabberwock, beware the Jabberwocky. With jaws that bite and claws to catch. Beware the Jabberwock, beware the Jabberwocky. Beware the Jabberwock. Beware the Jabberwocky Beware the Jabberwock Beware the Jabberwocky With jaws to bite and claws to catch Alright, now you know everything there is to know about Infinite Jest Now you gotta go read the book If you were able to get through the podcast and follow all, everything we're talking about You'll have no problem reading the book So thank you Greg, that was awesome Next week we have Perry Grip of Nerf Herder We had a Marcella Vignali won an Academy Award for animating the Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse Perry Grip is an Emmy winner. So we only have awesome people on this podcast. Perry Grip uh, co-wrote Guitar Hero Hero Song, and he does great solo work. I've played with Nerf Herder a lot. Just an incredible guy. So that is next week. Until then, have a great week. Come see us in the UK for tour dates and all that flavor. NerdcoreTour.com. Peace. Bye.